0: Welcome to Healthcare du jour where we dish up and
1: digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests.
0: Healthcare du jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now here's your host, Matt Fisher.
1: Welcome back and thank you for joining us as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Brad Gingrich, VP of Payer Strategy at Ensemble Health Partners. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey Matt, thanks for having me. So Brad, what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my conversation is to give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So Brad, the floor is yours.
0: Okay. Thanks, Matt. Um so uh, my name is Brad Gingrich, I'm the vice president of payer strategy, with Ensemble Health Partners. Um, a little bit about Ensemble, um, we're a full end-to-end outsourced revenue cycle management company. Um, our clients are large providers, hospitals, health systems. Um, we are an outsourcer of their complete business office as it relates to billing, collections, um, really the, the entire throughput of the revenue cycle. I personally, my um, responsibilities are around payer strategy, managed care contracting, and guidance to our clients. Um, that really kind of runs the gambit from uh, payer performance and ensuring that the payers, the insurance carriers, are adhering to the managed care contracts, as well as supporting our clients in any
1: sort of managed care negotiations or dispute resolution issues, things of that nature. It's yeah, so there's going to be a lot to unpack in that type of a role, but. Uh, another thing I always like to ask is, what got you into healthcare in the first place?
0: Well, I uh, so yeah, I kind of fell into healthcare, so it was never necessarily a a, a strong passion necessarily. Um, my mom was a, a case manager, an RN case manager, so I did have that kind of was in the family. But right out of college, a family acquaintance was he had a background in healthcare consulting, revenue cycle management. Um, bankruptcy turnaround, distressed asset restructuring. Um, he had was just leaving his consulting firm and was looking to start his own venture and for a startup company. Um, you don't have a whole lot of resources, so there's nothing cheaper than a freshly minted college grad. So I kind of fell into the role um, within healthcare consulting. He was a mentor to me and really showed me the ropes. Um, so it really worked in a lot of respects as a um, a career shortcut, if you will, a kind of a non-traditional approach to find your way into consulting. But it was great. learned a lot very quickly by kind of moving through a lot of different clients and a lot of various experiences, particularly in the
1: kind of distressed bankruptcy turnaround area. Yeah, kind of being able to learn through actual practical application and uh, just getting getting thrown into it and... Being able to discover kind of, it sounds like a passion around it. You know, I'm definitely a big advocate of that approach as to, as opposed to thinking for years and years that this is exactly what you want to do and then potentially getting very surprised by what it looks like in reality.
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so. And in, in my particular case, there was a lot to be done, a lot of work to be done, if you will, um, at our particular clients. And I somewhat had the, the freedom and the opportunity to go in and explore the areas of healthcare that I'm interested me, in. and so I I found my way, my niche being managed care, um, consulting, strategy, advisement, um, because it it really appealed to me, my personality. Um, I, have, I have a competitive streak, and I found that it was rather enjoyable to kind of take the position of the small. Distressed community hospital and going up against a pound gorilla, um, you know the local insurance company, the largest in the state, whoever that may have been at the time, and bringing it uh, to a successful conclusion on behalf of that small hospital. It was it was exciting and it was fun to really kind of take it to the big guys,
1: if you will. Yeah. So, kind of given that historical background that you've got, can you you know help provide maybe a, a table setting in terms of. You know What does it look like when we're talking about payer-provider relations and you know what goes into that contracting process?
0: Sure. Maybe, and if if you allow, maybe I can kind of take you through the progression of it. So when I first started my career, which was 2007, and I walked into my first hospital, which was a, a bankrupt, well, just acquired out of bankruptcy. Um, and one of my first tasks was to get my arms around the managed care contracts. So I started reviewing them. And again, this was 2007. And what I come to find was many of these agreements were actually from the 90s, you know, 95, 96, 97, whatever. And these were effectively grandfathered contracts that simply rolled over year-over-year. So they have what's called an evergreen clause. I'm sure you're familiar, but listeners who may not be, It simply means if if you take no action at the end of the anniversary date on the contract, it will auto-renew and just continue forward in perpetuity unless you actually Um, intentionally terminate that contract. Um, Depending on the agreement, there may be increases annually when it rolls over uh, a few percentage points, or there may not be. Um, But what I had come to find early in my career is many of these contracts just were neglected. So there was never really a focus on them. Um, And and I think that's for a multitude of reasons, Um, but managed care professionals, it's somewhat changed. And I've observed this through my career, But these folks were not always giving top billing, if you will. You didn't always find the top talent in the the hospitals or in these spaces. They didn't always um, have the right reporting structure. If there even was a managed care professional, it was somewhat an afterthought. And the reason that was able to occur in that environment was the market was different back then. Majority of all hospitals were getting all their revenue through Medicare, traditional Medicare. About 50% of all patients walking in the door had traditional Medicare. That's really your bread and butter. Medicare is fairly easy, you know, in a relative sense to bill and collect for. Um, since that time, as we're seeing now, is much more of that revenue is moving into the managed space. So Medicare, for example, there are much fewer traditional Medicare members than historically, as patients are opting into commercial products. So these are your Medicare Advantage plans, you know, like your AARP's, your Blue Cross replacement plans, things of that nature. Those are very different than Medicare, and those are all based on negotiated contracts. And so since 2007, what I've observed is more and more revenue is moving away from traditional CMS government payment sources, and now being routed through these third-party commercial companies. So you're Blue Cross is, your Enos, United's, um, Humana, anyone else that has a Medicare Advantage product, for example, um, and, and those all require contract. And so now a greater portion of every hospital's revenue is now subject to these managed care contracts that really changed the focus in, in the space in general and put a greater emphasis on the need to manage your contracting process, ensure your rates are adequate, your language, et cetera, everything that you need. Um, so that that's really kind of what was eye-opening to me was this was somewhat neglected. Um, move forward to today, this is one of the most heightened focus areas of any health any healthcare provider. Um, there's limits on what you can do to really draw patient volume. You can market, you can advertise, you can try to bring in new services and things like that. But at the end of the day, one of the last remaining opportunities to actually drive revenue into a health system is those negotiated contracts you have with payers. and then the current light of inflation and all the other headwinds just creates
1: that much more pressure on it. and kind of given that background that you're just talking about where it sounded like you know providers, just because of how things operate, were able to not necessarily have enormous negative impacts from Allowing contracts to just renew year after year. You know, what were some of the areas that you had to help them focus on to get up to speed and improve their ability to negotiate the agreements?
0: Sure. So you know, one of the things is in my opinion, is health systems often were giving away their asset, and that is network adequacy. So that's, uh, or excuse me, network access. And so that being, if I'm a health system, if I'm a hospital provider, what you see is they have contracts with every payer out there, every single one, without ever really kind of drawing, creating a bit more of scarcity around that. And so that really kind of pushed rates down in general. So there's never been kind of this notion to say, um, and pick out any any pay or not to pick on one, Aetna, just falls first in the alphabet. Uh, at night, you want access to my health system? Well, we are a thriving ER. We're the only ER in town. Maybe you're a rural provider. We're the only ER in the county. And you want access to this? Well, you're going to have to pay. And you're going to have to pay a rate that covers our bottom line and allows us to continue to serve the communities that we're in. You know, whether you have a large indigent population, you on. Know, un- undercompensated care, whatever the case may be, health systems have to find ways to kind of bridge those gaps. And so creating more of a value structure around access to the health system has been one way to to be able to command those rates. And I think historical providers have never taken the hard stance to, not to use the word boycott, but to, to not sign on with every payer to pick and choose who their actual business partners are going to be. And those business partners need to uh reciprocate with proper rates proper
1: terms so I guess is it fair to say then that you know there's kind of an adversarial stance that might be taken in the negotiations, and if that isn't accurate or not descriptor, is that some you know a circumstance that it needs to exist or are there opportunities for true collaboration?
0: Well, it's definitely an adversarial
1: take today
0: um whether or not that needs to be the case. I I don't, I don't think it has to be. In fact, you know, that's kind of one of the things that we ensemble were striving towards is trying to remove that friction between payer and provider. And and it's certainly a goal of ours. Historically, they've always been very, they've been a challenge in relationships with them. There's very much a competitive take where there's a notion that it's a zero sum game. And so if the payer wins, it's at the cost of the provider. Um, you know, it's so much so that it's a, a joke when, you, when you're when you working with someone who came from the payer side. They always say, yeah, I cross over from the dark side. Like, you really do kind of have this, this idea of team to us versus them. I don't believe it has to be that way. I'm hopeful it's not always that way, but it certainly is today. Because in the large, it comes from a lack of transparency. No one really wants to show their cards. Um, payers, for example, they are not very transparent when they tell you what their medical necessity criteria is going to be, you have to kind of guess and stumble through it, and sometimes it may be because it's more subjective than anything. And you can't always put it down on paper in a black and white manner. Um, but but it's very challenging. I think to know exactly what payers want in a lot of those regards, they hold a lot of things close to the chest that's proprietary, and as a result, we just get into
1: somewhat a standoff in many cases. And. When you say that a standoff, um, I guess before I ask anything else, what what does that standoff look like and what could it entail?
0: Yeah, so uh, I, a standoff most, most commonly is when you're at an impasse in the negotiation. So let's say a particular health systems in a negotiation with one of the large payers and the clock is ticking down on when that contract will expire. So they provided some notice to eliminate that evergreen clause that we mentioned before. So the contract will not auto renew. So at some date certain, that hospital will be out of network with that insurance company. Now, as you get closer to that date, a lot of different things start to happen. There's notice requirements, patients need to be advised of where they can access care in the future, things like that. Um, But the standoff typically is around rates, that's usually first and foremost. The health system seeking greater rate increase, the health, the payer doesn't want to agree to that. um, And that's usually the primary issue. Um, Second to that is gonna be language, language being in the actual contract, which governs how the claims are paid, how timely they're paid, um, different nuances like that, appeal rights, et cetera. Those are critical, but usually take um, a backseat to the actual rates. When you're at an impasse and the rates can't be can't be agreed to, you get closer and closer to that drop dead termination date. Um, as a date comes closer, the parties continue to to work um in good faith to try to get it done. And I'd say just statistically, nine times out of ten, it gets resolved at that very last moment, the 25th hour. Or the parties might agree to a 30-day extension because they know a deal is imminent, but more times than not, it gets resolved at the very end. Um, you know my my take on this the the advantages to the provider take your time you know you don't have to you don't have to negotiate against yourself take your time get close to that that clock and I think you'll find some of your asks will start to be met a little sooner um, but that's how the standoff usually comes it's about rates you get closer to the date and then it starts to spill over into the public domain as patients have to become aid aware. Uh, the community at large, attending, uh, attending and referring physicians, et cetera, and then press and media all gets their hands on it. And then, you know, there's a lot of business interests involved as well. And so, there may be you know, sponsored things that the payers are putting out or providers, et cetera, to
1: help make their case because it does spill into the court of public opinion too. Yeah, it certainly sounds like public pressure can ratchet up as you're nearing that uh, deadline. As you're talking about. And for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Brad Gingrich from Ensemble Health Partners. We've been talking a lot about kind of the history of the payer-provider relationship and some of the factors that go into negotiating agreements between them. And Brad, kind of just building off of that tension that we were just talking about of you know when a standoff can occur can occur or you know there might be a misalignment of vision. You know, it feels like recently there have been more headlines of it's not just getting resolved, but there's you know one party or the other is going to court um and starting you know and lawsuits are being initiated. So you know do you have a you know a particular view from your perspective of why there are more lawsuits occurring or maybe it's just they were occurring and they weren't getting the same attention um in the past as they are now? Yeah, I think it's uh, the former I think that they are
0: more prevalent today. And a lot of that is around the necessity for it. So Historically, a lot of providers are very conservative health systems, they're, they're serving the communities they're in, Um, they need, their goal is to provide access and they want to be in network uh, with as many payers as they can, so they provide that access to the community. However, it's very real inflation and the cost challenges and staffing challenges that providers face. And so now out of necessity, they're being forced to take these more aggressive measures with payers where these opportunities or issues, whatever you want to term them, have always existed. Now they cannot be ignored. So out of necessity, providers have to stand up for and and preserve what they've negotiated for. So if they've negotiated a contract with a large payer and over the three-year term of that contract, the payer has not been paying claims in accordance with the contract, that, that could amount to a hundred million dollars, you know, depending on the size of the provider. Historically, maybe the provider had the wherewithal to not be as aggressive about that or write out whatever the case may be. Those luxuries are gone. And so now they have to go and get those back in one way or another. And litigation litigation's often a means to do it. Um, and that's particularly around in network. So if, if you have a managed care contract and the, the payer is not performing their contract, you may bring a legal action against them. Outside of that, there's situations where you may not be contracted and you feel that the payer is not paying according to the summary plan description, according to regulation, etc. So you may also bring litigation in a non-contracted situation as well where you're asking a third party to weigh in on how they're paying those claims since there's no manuscript contract to govern it.
1: Yeah, and so when there's no contract to govern it, you know, is there more room for attention or you kind know, of what what are the drivers there? Yeah, so that's that's a very
0: very um, loaded conversation because we've actually seen a lot of change in the healthcare industry um, over the last ten years. Um, so, particularly, well, first you had the Affordable Care Act, right, and so that uh, created the obligation to provide health insurance by employers. So now you have a greater amount of commercially insured individuals in the market, and then after that, you had the No Surprises Act, and the No Surprises Act rolled out really created a unique situation in that you, when there's no opportunity, or excuse me, no managed care contract to dictate how much claim should be paid, it's somewhat up in the air. Healthcare providers have the opportunity to effectively choose what they want to charge for any service, but there's no contract that's going to dictate how much you're going to pay Somewhere you have to find a means to settling on that amount. Historically, prior to the No Surprises Act, a provider would have the opportunity to bill a patient at difference. So if a provider billed $1,000 for an emergency service, they're out of network with the insurance, and the insurance only paid $500, well, then the provider would bill the remaining $500 to the patient. patient might call their insurance company. The insurance company would get involved and and make a, a settlement payment on that. To resolve and pay more than $500. Under the No Surprises Act, there's no opportunity to build the patient whatsoever. That was the leverage to the provider. So if a provider cannot put financial burden on a patient to compel that patient to go back to their insurance company and say, hey, you didn't pay enough. I now have a $500 bill. What well, gives? Without that opportunity, we're kind of stuck in the, at a standstill where providers cannot now balance the patient And you have to go through arbitration, which is all outlined in the No Surprises Act. So um, where my point mentioned that is out of network has undergone a lot of changes in the last 10 years. And I think as a result of the No Surprises Act, you're seeing much fewer providers ultimately go out of network. You're not seeing any less threatened to and to use that as a tactic in negotiations. But at the end of the day, I think fewer are actually going out of network. And that's probably because they don't want to leave that reimbursement up to an arbitrator
1: to decide. So, And with fewer going out of network, you know, I think you might have just implicitly said it, but it sounds like that might also change the negotiating dynamic around the contracts themselves if the appeal or the opportunity for going out of network is not as great as it might have been in the past. Yeah, so it's...
0: It's very different. Historically, it was a very large stick to go to a payer and say, I will go out and network with your commercial product, because that meant to the payer that their spend was going to increase. They no longer were getting a discount. So in the most simplistic terms, a managed care agreement is like a Groupon. An insurance company says, I'm going to steer all of my members your way. And in exchange, you give me a discount for the care you provide, them, and I'll pay for it. And that's essentially all it is when you terminate the contract you're saying no more discount but I'm confident the patients will still come to me because I provide an emergency room and when you're in an emergency you're not really shopping around you're going to the nearest emergency room so you're telling the payer I don't need to be on your list of participating providers to see the patients I'll still see them and you're not going to get that discount any longer um so historically, that was the way you do it. That was your your stick is the threat of an increased spend to the payer. And you, as a provider, would get additional revenue. And There's no surprise that that opportunity is largely gone, right? You don't at least can't charge what you want, expect the payer to pay all of that because they have to hold the member harmless. So now what we're doing is looking more to those Medicare Advantage plans and things of that nature, and understanding that the payers, uh, the largest revenue source to them is really these fully insured governmental plans, so Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, um, replacement plans. These are where the payers are really making a lot of their margin, and if there's an opportunity to terminate those agreements such that the member might actually change plans and move to the competing Medicare Advantage plan, because to them, the cost is the same. There's no out of pocket cost. So they're somewhat plain agnostic. They're concerned about their primary care physician, who they've seen for the last 15 years, still being able to treat them tomorrow. So when their primary care physician says, Hey, Jane Doe, um, I'm sorry, we can't accept you know, ABC insurance company going forward, we weren't able to, to agree on rates. However, I do accept these other five. And we're in open enrollment right now. Might want to make your decisions, you know, use that information as you will. And it becomes a huge concern to the insurance companies, to those payers when they start losing membership. And so it's a, a very creative new approach to trying to level the playing field. And it's really what it's come to. I mean, providers have to not play dirty, but we have to use everything that's available to us because these are very large, very sophisticated payers. They have a lot of resources behind them. Um and they've, you know, they've got a lot to spend to try to win that game. So I'm trying to be novel in your approach—that's somewhat
1: we're trying to kind of re- rewrite this. Yeah. So, kind of given all those swirling factors and you know the the constantly changing elements of you know and levers that can be pulled, you know, are you starting to see any type of shift where there is more of a willingness to you know have collaborative uh, discussions between providers and payers so that you're, if not fully removing, at least kind of minimizing that adversarial approach and trying to find common footing on things. And part of, you know, that's the part that's floating in my mind in that regard is, you know, with value contracts or risk risk based contracts, it seems like that would be a way to drive alignment because you need to have the transparency you're talking about earlier and have folks working together as opposed to at cross purposes if you want to succeed in that environment.
0: Yeah, I I think um, some of the risk sharing models are certainly going to be a step in that direction. Um, My one concern is as providers start to develop their sophistication in that space in population health and risk management, where does that leave the payers? And so there may be a bit of resistance to fully bring us into their space, if you will. Um, Today... You don't see as many of the full risk model agreements. You see a lot more what are referred to as value based purchasing, value based contracts, and what that really means is if there's a savings, the payer will share the savings with you. It, it, it kind of creates a conflict in and of itself because those savings mean less revenue for you. So what that really means is if you can, if you can extract less revenue from that payer, it, and of course that means less consumption of resources, et cetera. But if if you can get less revenue from that payer, you can share a portion of that lesser amount. So wouldn't I rather just have 100% of that piece? Uh, so anyways, I, I just that's always pointing back in my mind that, that it's just kind of a fundamental um, challenge which is value-based purchasing. I think you need to move to the point that providers are actually holding risk in this. They have um, a limited you know, fixed dollar to treat the patients. And that's where you'll, I think, start to see more of a collaboration between the two. Um, but until you get
1: there, it's still going to be an us versus them situation. Um, And I think that's fair enough. And Brad, believe it or not, we're already out of time or close to it. So I want to ask you one final question, which is given the context of everything that we've talked about, what do you think could be done if you had a magic wand and could wave it to drive improvement in the relationship between providers and payers?
0: I think we need to Maybe understand what everyone's really after, what we need. So as a provider, our objective is to be paid quickly, timely, and to get paid easily. So what that means is we don't want to have to do a lot of rework. We don't want to have to bill a claim and then have to substantiate why it's payable over the next 90 days submit medical records, itemize bills, have a physician write a, an appeal to justify. We, we don't wanna to have to do any of that. We, we provided the care six months ago. We're still fighting for payment today. So that's a problem for us. If the payers are ultimately gonna release the funds, how can we move that money upstream? That will go a long way for providers. On the payer side, um, you know, I recognize their needs as well. They want predictability. They want to be able to predict well into the future what their healthcare spend is gonna be so they can right-size their premiums that they're charging their patients and can really manage their expenses. Um, An abrupt termination of a contract and hitting a payer for a significant rate increase that they don't have forecasted into their budget next year, that's a problem for them, right? It's not predictable. And so kind of trying to appease both sides, understand what both, Sides need. There is certainly, I think, a middle ground there, but today we don't have a whole lot of that collaboration. Again, and it probably will start with trust and how how, how do we get there? You have to give trust to get it, I guess. I'm not sure how how we first start off in that process, um, but that that's one of the challenges today is um, no one's really, I think, with full good faith coming together and saying, here's what we ultimately need, is what you ultimately need. Let's just put all the cards on the table to solve it.
1: Yeah, and no, I think yeah. your point about trust is one that should be well taken. And hopefully that does get created uh, sooner rather than later. But as I said, believe it or not, we are already out of time. I want to thank my guest, Brad Gingrich, for a great conversation today. Thanks, Matt. It's great being here. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the di- dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag HCDE. J-U-R-E. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time.